0: topic tonight, and I do hope to do a little a little uh, demonstration. You know me, wacky, always fun loving. So this is the book, How We Got It, How to Get the Most Out of It. Starting next week, we'll move on to the second part of this series, that is, How to Get the Most Out of It. Some principles of... Engaging the word effectively so it bears fruit in our lives. So this is kind of the last, probably, the last of the more technical, how do we get this book? And the process, and what do we mean by infallibility and inspiration and all of that? Tonight, human words, divine words, what inerrancy is and what it isn't, and why it matters. 2 Peter 1, 19-21. Do you all have that? Let's just read it aloud. You do? Okay, let's read it aloud in unison and don't mumble it, okay? Proclaim it. Here we go. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation... For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Two words frequently get used when you're talking about this text, the print on the pages in your Bible. Infallibility and inerrancy. By infallibility, we mean that the Scriptures possess a permanent authority that can never be usurped or set aside, what they say matters. Um, the way Jesus said in in john ten thirty five scripture cannot be broken that 's infallibility, the weight of it, the importance of it, the validity of it, it means there 's no other authority that can be brought alongside um, as opposed to our our Roman Catholic friends who believe that the church is the cradle for the scriptures and the church has equal authority usually along with the scriptures and church tradition. We would say no, that that goes against the idea of infallibility. No authority can be brought alongside. They are eternally binding. They are irreplaceable. What they say will happen will happen. What they promise will stand fast, even if circumstances make that look impossible at the moment. God's word stands. It never passes away. Heaven and earth will pass away. Not these words. That doesn't mean, for example, that this... I mean, my Bible's getting old already. I have a new one. And you know how it is. A, A new Bible just doesn't feel right, does it, after a while. So I don't mean that the words on this page can't deteriorate... ...this book can't disintegrate. I mean, I mean the authority of the book. What is said stands. Okay, the second word is inerrancy. That means the scriptures as God originally gave them... ...are exempt from liability to mistake. They are truthful in what they communicate. They are incapable of error... ...in everything they intend to communicate... ...that's a very important first half sentence. In everything they intend to communicate... ...the scriptures make no mistakes. So God's revelation is safe and reliable. And it's that second term, inerrancy. That's the topic tonight. What do we mean, and just as importantly... ...what do we not mean... ...when we say that the scriptures as God originally gave them are inerrant. And, and before we get right into kind of the, the meat of the study... ...I want to deal with two questions that Christians and sometimes critics... ...but sometimes just sincere Christians frequently ask. I find over and over again, conversations with people. There are two questions that get asked. To some they're a source of concern... And I think they should be a source of comfort. That's how different my view is. So, so bear with me. Just some background issues on this whole subject of inerrancy. Here's question number one. Isn't it true that it was centuries before the early church finally recognized the complete canon of the New Testament? Remember, canon doesn't mean... It's not the, the gun that shoots off the ship. Canon means rule. Basically, it means rule. Norm that by which other things are measured, canon. So isn't it true that centuries passed before the early church finally recognized the complete canon of the New Testament? And the honest answer to that question is yes. I don't want to bore you, but just real quick, the, the, the bird's eye view of the actual history would go something like this. The, the first list that we know of, of the 27 letters of our New Testament. The first known list comes from the writings of Irenaeus in 180 AD. So 180 years after Christ. And the first official proclamation, the first official affirmation of the complete canon of the New Testament, the 27 books that took place at the Synod of Hippo in 393 AD. And so the question gets asked, what was the church doing for the first two and a half, three centuries of her existence? And the answer to that question is, she was establishing the validity and authenticity of the letters that were handed down to her. I want to tell you why this is important. I haven't forgotten about you guys. It's important because as early as 40 A.D., while many people who walked and talked with Christ were still alive, okay, as early as 40 A.D., the church encountered all sorts of counterfeit gospels and letters. In the writings of Marcion, there were other people claiming to be apostles and they had their documents, sometimes with conflicting doctrines. And so, you might ask, why didn't God just hand down some books from heaven ...right away. Why this lingering... ...this sorting out... ...this sifting of documents and letters... ...for three centuries? Why did God do it that way? And, and the answer is... ...then and now... ...the Holy Spirit was... ...teaching and training the church... ...to try and sort and study. The, whole, the Holy Spirit was teaching the ter- church... ...to test and prove... ...sound doctrine, and the way you do that is in a world full of competing doctrines... ...and competing worldviews, and conflicting ideas. Consider these words from F.F. Bruce. If you ever see books and you wonder what that stands for, it's Frederick Fivy. Fivy. Frederick Fivy Bruce. He has a great little book called The Books and the Parchments, and he says this... What's particularly important to notice is that the New Testament canon was not demarcated by the arbitrary decree of any church council. When at last a church synod, the Synod of Hippo, the one I talked about in 393, when at last they listed the 27 books of the New Testament, the church was not conferring on them any authority they did not already possess, but simply recorded their previously established canonicity. There's, there's another thing that arises out of this point, And it's in need of being stated... ...right at this time. All sorts of people think that it would be better... ...that it would be advantageous... ...if they had lived somewhat closer... ...to the time of Jesus. That it was just a more spiritual, godly time. And if, if we could have been alive... ...you know, around through the book of Acts... ...and, and 100 A.D. and in, in that period... ...that somehow spirituality was an easier thing... ...than in this godless, pagan, secular world... ...so removed from New Testament times. It isn't true. True doctrine... ...was easier to evaluate and test... ...after those times... ...because everyone was keying off the same letters... ...the same documents. This is a relevant concern. I mean, we have in our own day... ...everything from the Da Vinci Code... ...to all the fuss over the Gospels of Judas and Thomas... ...telling us that we need to zoom back to earlier letters... Writings dating prior to the Synod of Hippo and the verifying of the New Testament canon. But that's nonsense. I mean, the church has already gone over that ground. Remember that when you see movies like that. They look contemporary to us, but you need to say to yourself, you know what, the early church went over all those heresies so long ago and already ruled them out. This is a much safer time in which to live as long as you know a bit of history. I said there were two issues that people find troubling. Here's the second one. It's your second point there. With so many manuscripts and manuscript fragments of the New Testament... ...there are bound to be variations in the text. Isn't this a huge problem for the doctrine of inerrancy? The answer to that is yes. There are many, many discovered manuscripts... ...and fragments, pieces of manuscripts. And, and we need to... ...I know this doesn't want to make you dance in the aisles... ...but this is something else that we, we need to give some attention to... ...and reflect on it. You see, historical documents... ...I don't mean the Bible exclusively... ...I mean all historic documents of all kinds they're considered very well represented if they have over 5 manuscripts back to their original writings in other words if you if you don't have the original but you have 5 fairly good copies that's thought of as being a very well documented that's the kind of document you will study in universities all over the world so so Caesar's Gaelic Wars has about 10 manuscripts, the oldest of which dates 900 years after the events. That is considered excellent historic veracity. The Roman History of Livy has about 20 manuscripts. The Annals of Roman Historius Tacticus has two manuscripts. The History of Thucydides has eight manuscripts. All of these, those documents mean nothing to you. But those are documents studied... ...carefully and used in historic research. Now today... ...and this number grows all the time. We have, get this... ...5,700 manuscripts and manuscript fragments... ...of the New Testament... Yes, that means there are variations in wording from one ancient manuscript to another. But if you think about it, that shouldn't be troubling. True, the more manuscripts you have, the more variations you have. But there's another side to consider, and that is that the greater number of manuscripts you have, the easier it is to recognize and prove the original from the variant. I mean, simplify that. Sorry for that big sentence. If you have two clocks... ...one of them says it's 10 o'clock... ...one of them says it's 10.30. There are only two clocks on the planet. You could, I suppose, take the time and measure the angle of the sun and shadows on the earth... ...and you could eventually figure out maybe which is closer. ...but if you only have two clocks and you're looking at those two clocks... ...there are no other clocks on the planet. Which one's right? I mean, that's a really hard thing to establish. If you have a million clocks... ...and 999,999 of them say it's 10 o'clock... ...and one of them says it's 10.30. It's not impossible that the one that says 1030 is right, but the odds are, right? The odds are with all those other ones you have a better idea of what time it actually is. The Plain fact that there are no other historic manuscripts and I mean that sentence. I mean absolutely none, zero, nada, in any field of study. There are no historic documents on planet Earth with more historic manuscripts than the New Testament. Do you think that's an accident? And I would say it's not. I would say it's the sovereignty of God. Again, listen to F.F. Bruce. In his little book... If you find this little book... It's not in our resource room. It's small and it's not a lot of money. I'm not sure it's in print anymore. But if you want a great book... F.F. Bruce's book... The New Testament Documents... Are They Reliable? Write that down. The New Testament Documents... Are They Reliable? You might still be able to get it online somewhere or something. It is fabulous. And he says this, listen... The variant reading about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affect no material question of historic fact or of Christian faith and practice. This is the third point, and this is where these guys are going to help me in a minute. Ron's going to help me first. He doesn't know that either yet. I've not spoken to anybody. But we're going to do an experiment. We're going to reenact... The centuries of church history... ...and we're going to do it right here on the platform... ...before your very eyes. Pretty cool, eh? Three. Is there other evidence outside the New Testament? Okay, so I'm not talking about the New Testament that you have... ...that you're reading tonight. Is there other evidence outside of the New Testament... ...from which we can examine the accuracy of the biblical text? And yes... There is evidence, a great deal of it. Very recognized historic documents verify the reliability of the New Testament letters. Things like the Didache, the Epistle of Barnabas, Clement's letter to the Corinthians. They all quote extensively from the New Testament just as we have it today. The same is true of the letters of Polycarp and Ignatius, now listen, all of those letters that I just talked about, they're not in your New Testament. They're historic writings from the same period. All of those letters that I just talked about were written before 100 A.D. We need to consider the importance of that. F.F. F. Bruce says, no classical scholar would listen to an argument that the authenticity of Herodotus or Thucydides ...is in doubt because the earliest manuscripts of their work... ...which are of any use to us... ...are 1,300 years later than the originals. 1,300 years! These are studied in universities. And the gap between the original and the copy is 1,300 years. But think about what I just said a minute ago. We have external... ...reliable outside collaboration... ...of the historic reliability... ...in other documents that were written... ...very important... ...only 80 to 100 years... ...after the events... ...that the New Testament documents describe. Now what that means is... ...that these other historic writers... ...they had already studied and digested... ...a fully circulated New Testament... Before they wrote their letters. They wrote their letters at about 90 AD. So this is very, very, very early evidence for the credibility of the New Testament that you carry with you to church. Who cares? Who cares? Early or late. What's the difference? Now. This is going to unfold before your very eyes. First Ron's going to come up. Come here, Ron. It's going to be so much fun. You can sit here. Here's what's going to happen. I have a sentence that I wrote down on this piece of paper. I intentionally made it up a very strange sentence, so it's not something any of these people would have read or heard. Okay, That's important. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to whisper this to Ron. I won't show it to him. He is going to, to the best of his ability, write it down on that piece of paper. All right? What I'm going to illustrate here is a short distance. Between a source and a copy. He may not get it perfect. That's not the point. There's no wrong answer. You don't have to panic. Okay, so you can watch this happen. The same thing I did the front. I uh, whisper it, whisper it, whisper it, whisper it. The only thing is you cannot opt out. Even if you think I have a clue, you have to say something. Thank you. I think he shortened it up. (laughs) <laughs> this will be good you have to sip get cranky as you. Here's my sentence. I said I want it to be a bit of a different sentence. Here it is. That's written down. Turtles, as one will discover in this giant metaphor called life, seek to find solace in watching stampedes. That is a good sentence. Now, Ron, to be fair, had turtles, as one will experience, in the wild of Solus. This chain, it morphed even further. Their sentence that Tom wrote out is, Pastor Don figures that his time at Cedarview is very short. Okay, get off the platform. so I think you can see how a message can deviate when it passes a long stretch. I had hoped for some honest and sincere help. Here's the deal. We consider accurate, historic documents to be worthy of intellectual study, memorization, books written about documents, of which the original and the first copy that we have, there's a gap of 1,300 years. 1,300 years. With the New Testament, we have all sorts of historic confirmation written and recorded that we know is 80 years or less from the original. Now, if they hadn't been monkeying about, even with a strange sentence like that, the odds of getting the general gist of it are better with one person. If we had taken this whole congregation gone around the parking lot, you, by the end you would not even had a clue what I had written down as the original sentence. That's what happens over time and transmission of data. Okay, fourth point. Remind me never to call on you guys for help again. (laughs) Pastor Don, I've heard people give examples of errors they found in their Bibles. How do you explain that? And I want to wrap this up by going over some principles that I live by when I read my Bible. I I can't cover everything, but I want to just kind of condense it down to a few things. I want to say, yes, uh, there are some things that I can't fully explain yet. Some things. None of them are crucial points of doctrine. None of them. But some things that I see that I can't explain. But beyond that, I have learned that by far by far 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 most alleged errors that people talk about in the text have a much better explanation so I think we need to be careful you need to be careful I need to be careful as a church we need to know what we mean when we say the Bible is inerrant and we need to know what we don't mean when we say the Bible is inerrant because you can get into all sorts of trouble when you use the word carelessly when I use the term inerrant to describe the original manuscripts of the Bible, I mean something very specific. I mean, and here's the important sentence scriptures are free from error in what they intend to teach. And the important words in that sentence are the words intend and teach. Now, I want to try and explain that to you. And I want to I want to wrap this up. If you take my meaning to be something other than I intend, that doesn't mean I was an error. I'll pick you up at the Dallas airport Thursday at 10 a.m. And if I mean Eastern Standard Time and you mean Central Standard Time, then you're going to be early. Does that mean I was an error? No. I wasn't in error. It just means that you didn't understand what my intentions were in the words that I spoke. It's not a mistake. If I write you a letter of news or instruction and you're one of the new postmodern types who believes that language is open-ended and you can mean the language can mean whatever the reader rather than the author meant it to mean. That, by the way, is the new, uh, the new postmodern kind of view of Scripture, that the meaning of the text isn't what Paul or John or James meant to say. The meaning is whatever you take out of it. That's your meaning, and that's where that phrase comes. This is your truth, and this is my truth, and this is his truth, and everybody has their truth. But if you read the Bible like that, ...there's no error in the Bible... ...you're just doing the text a disservice. Secondly, if you press my words in details... ...beyond what I was trying to say... ...that doesn't mean I was in error. John Piper gives this illustration. If I say, son, go pick up your mother at the town square... and ...my son drives to the town square... ...lifts his mother up off the ground... ...then gets back into the car and leaves. What I said to him wasn't an error, he just took my words to press... ...more than I was saying in in my sentence. Or, if I say, pick up your mother in the town square... ...and he gets out of his car, picks up his mother... ...and then he proceeds to measure the area of the square... ...and discovers it's not a perfect square. He hasn't proved me a liar when I said, go get your mother in the town square. So my words aren't in error just because they get pressed beyond what I was intending to say. There's all sorts of examples of that. Third, the scriptures are not in error when they describe events as they are seen. I mean, there are so many examples of this in the Bible. I can give you just one. People think they're clever when they point this out. Joshua 10.13 And the sun stood still... ...and the moon stopped... ...until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven... ...and did not hurry to set... ...for about a whole day. Now, understand... ...I believe... ...I believe in the validity of that miracle. I think it happened... ...just like that. I take it literally... That's not my point at all. My point is different. My point is Joshua isn't calling all of us to believe a pre copernican view of astronomy when he says the sun stood still. We all know the sun doesn't move anyway, right? The earth goes around the sun. But that's not an error. That is the Bible describing what Joshua saw when he looked up into the sky. We still talk about sunset, don't we? Does the sun actually set? It doesn't. That's not an error. That's just describing in language what we observe with our eyes. Four. I'll explain this. Idiomatic terms aren't errors. I mean something like this. We do it all the time. That noise scared me to death. Well then, how come you're, you're alive and able to say that? If it scared you to death... ...you'd be... ...dead. I was thinking about this. If I had a dollar... ...for every time... ...my mother told me something her four boys did... ...scared her to death... ...I would have retired twenty years ago. But she didn't die. And that's not what she was trying to say. That's not what she was trying to communicate. It's called an idiom. There are examples in the Bible. Genesis twenty-two seventeen. 17. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Seashore. Really? As the sand is on the seashore. There aren't that many Jews on earth. Never have been. There are about 14 million Jews on earth today. Do you honestly think there aren't more than 14 million grains of sand? There's way more than that. But that's not an error. The prophet Jeremiah tells us what God's words in Genesis mean. Jeremiah 33:22 says, As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant. That's the meaning. Too many to sit and count, put in a line. Especially in an era with no computers or calculators. It's not an error. Nobody's going to sit down and take the time to count 14 million. Takes a long time. One, two, three. Do you really want to go to 14 million? 14 million? Five. We're almost done. It's not an error when parallel passages are worded differently around the intention of the author. ...or details are included in one account... ...that are not included in another. There's all sorts of examples of this. Genesis chapter 1 starts with the cosmos... ...and ends with the creation of... ...the man and the woman. The second creation account in chapter 2... ...starts with the people... ...and then works backward... ...to the creation of the cosmos. That's not a mistake... There's a different purpose in each one. The first one is done chronologically. The second one is done, sorry, anthropocentrically. With man-centered. With man at the center of the story and building everything around it. Matthew's account gives a longer version of the Lord's Prayer than Luke's. The Beatitudes vary in length in the two synoptic writers. Parables vary... In the telling, to suit the purpose of the occasion. All of that fits in with the idea of inerrancy. Which means the scriptures are totally accurate and truthful in all that they intend to say and teach. Lastly. Pastor Don, you keep saying the scriptures are inerrant in the original manuscripts. But we don't even have the original manuscripts. So what good is the doctrine of inerrancy? That's a fair question. It's a good question. You, you keep saying the original documents are free from error, but who cares? We're not working with those documents. So how in the world does it matter if they were absolutely inerrant? Well, I think it matters a great deal. It matters because it gives us an absolute standard. A genuine historic reality... ...toward which the whole science of translation and study aims and leads. As I've tried to show in this study tonight... ...for all practical purposes, we're already there. To the degree that we do the work with the text... ...as we continue to study and labor honestly... ...with the actual historic manuscripts that we have... ...we are putting our labors into the very words of God. We simply have no idea... ...if you could time travel somehow. We just have no idea what has gone into these precious Bibles... ...we throw onto chairs in the back seat of our car... The first printed Greek New Testament was produced by Erasmus in 1516. Think about that for a minute. 1516. This is the first published New Testament. 1516. Before that, Bibles weren't printed. There were no publishing companies. No word processors. For the first 1,500 years, Bibles weren't mass printed. Do you know how they existed? Every single one was painstakingly copied. It's a, it's a good thing to take out your Bible and every once in a while. Just take it out and look at it. ...take it out and look at it. You probably have seven or eight of them. How did did that become possible for you? Here's what went into the text... ...you're carrying with you to church, I hope, today. For 1500 years... ...monks and scribes and scholars... ...spent their entire lives... ...hour after hour... ...day after day with quill and crude ink... ...scratching out what they knew were words too precious... ...not to pass on. Because there was no easy way to mass produce them. Picture. Forget Amazon. Click. Send me an NIV Bible. Picture some dark chamber with no electricity, where someone you will never know wept over words in either Greek or Latin as he he slowly scratched out, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made never writing as fast as I'm speaking he'd still be writing in the ink B. and that is the only reason It's an incredible miracle. And truth too precious. Too precious for words. And in churches all over Canada, in churches all over Canada, it's rarely used anymore. Murray, was here in our services the odd time. He told me on the cruise ship, you know that little thing where you put up a Bible passage, usually Chris, Ron, and the whole church reads the Bible together? Yeah. I don't know of any other church that does that. Think about that for a minute. I don't know of any other church that does that. I remember the first time I was visiting a church and I saw that on the screen and I heard the church do it and I leaned over to Rini and I said, we got to do that every Sunday. It's, it's the book. It's the book. Remember when you were younger in a different era and we'd all do, sing them over again to me wonderful words of life. And then, Let me more of their beauty see. It's a shame we let that fall out of use, isn't it? Wonderful words of life.